Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 33, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Joe's back on twice in one month. I know, twice in one month. I couldn't stay away. I enjoyed it that much last time I had to come back. This must be a record. Normally leave it like six weeks between episodes. I know, usually there is, but you know, I just had to come back. Plus, you've got a very special guest on later on, which I was very interested in. Well, we have. Now, um, on today's show, I think it's fair to say, um, I think we'd all agree this guy's definitely up there in our favourite YouTubers. He's definitely one of my favourites. Absolutely. I've been following him for years. Now we're talking about Clint Basinger from LGR Lazy Game Reviews, which uh, if you watch his videos, they're anything but lazy. Yeah, no, that's quite a funny (laughs) name because of the complete opposite. He goes into such great detail. And what you will find out later on in the interview is... A lot of passion and a lot of work goes into these videos. It's not something he just chucks together with a hand camera like so many YouTubers do mm. and they get, end up with 100,000 likes, the bastards. <laughs> he, he puts so much effort into it and it, you really, it really comes through in the interview. And I think he said he's just crossed the, was it 400,000 subscribers, Mark? Yeah, yeah, he just hit that this week. Well, this guy, I mean, if you enjoy our show, we implore anyone to go and have a look at him on YouTube if you don't subscribe already. Uh, but he kind of covers more, it's a lot of classic kind of DOS gaming and like weird technology and... Uh, Early PC scene kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. He, d- he does touch on like a little bit of Nintendo, a little bit of Sega, but it is mainly, uh, you know, PC kind of stuff, which isn't usually my favourite subject, but I end up, you know, 12, 12 at night, one in the morning watching his oddware shows and being absolutely like engulfed and just interested in what he has to say <laughs> i don't know maybe it's his voice <laughs> yeah. he does a mean duke newcome impression he does, yeah. he does do a mean so, uh, yeah well clint is going to be on on the retro hour in around half an hour from now now if you're new to the show maybe you've just found us through our lgr's youtube channel and um, the way the show works is we come out every single friday we do about 20 to 30 minutes of the big retro and technology stories of the week and then the second half we hand over to our special guest now, before we get to the news, though, there are a few events that we're going to be at very soon, including um, the annual big show that comes up in Manchester every year. Oh, yes, it's uh, Play Expo. Um, we were there last year. We'll be there again on uh, Sunday, October the 9th. Now, it is a full weekend thing on the Saturday and the Sunday. Unfortunately, we can only make the Sunday this year, which I think is probably for the best, bearing in mind that we did actually go out, and I think we got in about 5 o'clock in the morning before last year's. Yeah, yeah, we, were, we weren't really there that Sunday. We were just hung over, completely wrecked last time. It was, uh... I probably will be anyway. <laughs> hey, you're like that every day, aren't you, I don't know, I would have time. <laughs> so uh, if you are coming along to Play Expo, uh, we're going to be there on the Sunday, and uh, tickets are available now. We'll put all the details in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Got to give a massive thank you as well to uh, Howard Nibs, who got in touch with us this week and actually made a, a generous donation to the show. Yeah, and it actually um, put our asses in gear to put a <laughs> donation button on the website. So made us realise that people are actually interested in what we do. Yeah, well, he, he just tweeted us and said, you know, do you accept donations? And we're like, uh, oh, yes, we do. So uh, we, we put a button on that. I mean, look, any donations that we do get, we don't expect anything in return for doing this show. Uh, we enjoy doing this. It's just, you know, a couple of guys coming in, chatting about games, and we've got a passion for it like you have as well. Um, but obviously doing the show, I mean, we've got server costs, SoundCloud subscriptions, you know, it is a few hundred quid a year to do the show. So any donations will be gratefully received and obviously all go into the running of the show. So donation button is on the front page of theretrohour.com. Right then, this week's stories. And uh, this is a game that is probably one of my all-time favourite games, I'd say. Originally playing this on the Amiga um, back in the early 90s. And I think it came out in America under the title, was it Soldiers of Fortune? Yeah, yeah, I don't know why they had to have it on a (laughs) stupid name like that. But um, it's Chaos Engine. Yeah, now there is a, a new game that's kind of been inspired by the Chaos Engine. And um, it's going to be called Tower 57. And if you look at this, um, Indie Retro News has actually embedded a cool little video 
um, trailer that they've put up on YouTube this week. And it is kind of, if you imagine Chaos Engine in 2016. Yeah, yeah. I saw some footage of this a while ago, but I think it was only screenshots. Um, but they were saying this was for Amiga OS 4. Which yeah, well, is the new version of the Amiga operating system? Well, it is a PC, Mac, and Linux game, but I think they had a certain. Um, there was like a benchmark in the Kickstarter where they said if they get over a certain point, they're going to put it on Amiga OS and Morph OS as well. Ah, okay. And I think it did just reach that. So, yeah. it, yeah, well, I mean, I don't know. It's going to Morphos. That's good. Yeah, it's being shared between the two. If you played the original Chaos Engine, though, as we have, have you played it before, Joe? I haven't. I'm, I'm really engulfed in the video of Tower 57. <laughs> um, it's one of those games that kind of pops up because obviously there's a Mega Drive and a SNES port of it being my kind of preferred consoles. Um, so I've just never picked them up because they've always been around the 30, 40 pound mark, you know, unboxed. So it's never been because I don't really know any, much about it. I've just not picked it up, but I've only ever heard good things about it. So, and this does look quite interesting, Tower 57. So It's a very hard game as well. Ravi and I did a... <laughs> A let's play at Christmas when we featured that. We couldn't get past the first level, could we? With all the lives. Well, to be well, fair, you guys do suck. Well, this is true. <laughs> this one looks uh, a little bit different, though, because there's elements of Jurassic Park on the Amiga, and there's elements of Chaos Engine, but it's very fast as well. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots of little bits of action going on, so I think there's a mix of many games in here. It's just cool to see, like, an overhead kind of 16-bit shooter coming out. It's you know. just, yeah, it's just nice to see a modern one. It just looks very clean and polished, and just, it kind of reminds me of, um, oh, what's it called? Is it Hotline Miami? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it kind of reminds me of that a little bit, um, which, once again, was a good game, so, yeah, you know, can't go wrong if it looks like that. <laughs> very 80s-inspired, that game, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah I, I like the logo on that game, which, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about logos a bit later, actually, we have a story about that. Uh, but if you want to uh, follow that Kickstarter, I think the game's due out in 2017, so you can check out the preview and uh, follow that on Kickstarter at theretrohour.com. Now, got to give a shout to uh, a buddy of ours who's actually written a book, and this is uh, Andrew Foster, who occasionally hosts on the RGDS podcast. And uh, he's actually a pretty successful musician as well. He does like the uh, Isle of Wight Festival and stuff I saw on his website. Oh, cool. And he's actually done a book about his experiences in gaming. Yeah, I had a little browse through this. It looks really good. It's, it's kind of all the memories that, you know, we had as a shared experience as kids. So there's a whole section about the AMF bowling alley yeah. and how we used <laughs> to go down there and play on Virtual Fighter and, you know, all the old kind of arcades. Yeah, I've got fond memories of going to uh, Laser Quest and uh, not actually playing Laser Quest and just going to the arcade just to play Marvel vs. Capcom. <laughs> <laughs> well, he even talks about like, um, you know, I think anyone that do, grew up in Britain in this kind of era will have these kind of shared memories about going into school and you find like, you know, BBC Micros and Acorn Archimedes on trolleys at the wheel around and like, why did all schools have the computers on trolleys? Like, yeah. what was that about on TVs? If why you saw it, it, it got wheeled in and that would be the best day ever. So, But often you'd see the Acorn get wheeled in and nobody would actually get to go on it. It's like, why is it there? Is it just tantalizing and teasing you in the corner? Why, why would you have arcades at swimming pools as well? I never got that. Whenever you go to the swimming pool, there'd always be a weird arcade in the corner. You know what? I never, I, that, I never saw that, but the chippy, the chip shop we used to Dude. go to when I was a kid, it had metal slug. How cool is that? It had metal slug in the chippy in Trent Bridge, and I was just like, I used to look at it, can I have a go? Nah. Oh, okay. <laughs> we used to, right, when I was at school, there was an arcade in town that was probably about a mile away. And like at lunch, we, we'd all walk out of school, walk to this arcade that was a mile away, play for like five minutes and walk a mile back to school. We'd do it like every day. But um, it is, I think, you know, 
anyone that's kind of got these memories will enjoy Andrew's book. And even talks about, um, you remember those kind of cheesy Tiger LCD games? Oh, uh, yeah, little handhelds. Got like a big section yeah. on them, like the Turtles one and all that as well. So I really enjoyed reading this. And, you know, he didn't do a Kickstarter or anything like that. It is quite a small book, but there's also a PDF that you can download as well if you want to check it out. And I think, you know, anyone that loves our show will... Uh, We'll share his memories. Even got a bit about like cover tapes and Commodore format and those kind of magazines in the early 90s as well. So if you want to find out more about his book and where you can download it from, we'll pop that in the show notes this week as well. Now, <laughs> you know, recently we had that story about um, nuclear power stations using ancient technology, which was scary enough. But it turns out that airlines are apparently using computers that are a few decades old as well. Yeah, well, the kind of airline, you know, the, the, the most trusted place you should be on a, on a plane. Got your, life your entire in life hands. in their hands, <laughs> yeah. And uh, they, they've basically had quite a mass load of outages recently. And they don't know why they're happening. This is Delta Airlines. Delta Airlines in America, yeah. And uh, they had to cancel more than 650 flights. A lot of people are saying it's because of their old computer system that they've got. It's actually decades old that's running it. They reckon that the, the main systems, a lot of them are 30 years old now. The thing is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, Maybe they are broke right now. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what system do you think it would be then? Well, it's probably uh, like some old main... text. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably like some old mainframe or something, isn't it? But it, again, it's... I mean, from I've looked through this story and they're saying they don't really know why, which I'm not sure I really buy that. A lot of people are saying it's probably a power outage or something like that, or, you know, maybe more of a an electronic fault than an actual, you know, software problem or hardware problem. Change the capacitors. <laughs> it could, probably could be something like that, but it's... Have they switched it on and off again? <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, with these systems, like Joe said then, I mean, these are really expensive machines. A lot of them just leave them running 24 hours a day. They do the job fine and everything like that. And they do often say that powering off a machine and putting it back on causes the most strain on the components. If you leave it on for like 30 years, it'd probably be all right. It's when you turn it off and on every Do you day. reckon somebody just switched it off like once? Like, thought, you know what, we'll give it a break. It's been 30 we'll years. It, it's been 30 years. <laughs> and that's it, it just wouldn't turn back on. Yeah. Bit of cleaner coming in or something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tripped over one cable. <laughs> but um, you look at it, and in 650 cancelled flights, though, that is... You're talking like hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions. It's fascinating. I, I'd love to look into something like the National Grid. Of course, you can't look in the National Grid because it's mm -hmm. a secret. But I'd love to see the older systems on there. And uh, you can't imagine what people are using if they're using, you know, big floppy disks and tape drives for nuclear <laughs> missiles. <laughs> and this was the last time we ever heard Ravi. <laughs> <laughs> it disappeared. I did actually see a job advert last year, and that was for some government agency, and they, they wanted COBOL programmers. Oh, wow. Some of the new system from, like, the mid-70s. Oh, wow. So, did, you, did you see the competition that they had? What they had was a, this? a mathematical equation, and if you could answer it, then... Uh, GCHQ, MI5 would contact you and say, Yes, I did. Oh, yeah, about that. You're, yeah, you're smart enough to come and apply for us. <laughs> to, to program in COBOL. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, we love the Raspberry Pi on this show. We always talk about little projects and stuff and hacks that you can do in it. You know, between us, we've probably got about 10 now, I think, haven't we? Yeah, yeah um, quite there, a few. There's a competitor, though, on the block now The Onion. <laughs> this is what it's called. It's called the Onion Omega 2. Why do all these computers have names that make me hungry? <laughs> God knows. I think it started... It's nothing like buying it. into a full onion, eh, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> that could be their tagline. The, the, the crazy thing about the Onion is it's four times smaller than the Raspberry Pi. So the picture for comparison, they've got a cherry 
Mm-hmm. And they've got the chip next to it. At which point, like, in technology, did smaller become better? Because you remember, like, for years, it was like, oh, look how big this and chunky it is. And then now it's just like, look how tiny and small and, you know, easy it is to lose. You're looking at this and it is essentially about the size of your thumb. Yeah. And um, this is like a full single ball computer. I mean, it really, it's no bigger than a chip, is it? Yeah, and it's four pounds. Yeah. Four pounds to produce <laughs> this tiny machine. It's insane. They are saying that the specs of it are, um, you know, it, it is less spec than the Raspberry Pi 3. Um, a 580 megahertz processor, 64 megabytes of RAM and 16 megabytes of storage. But this is all on board as well. So, I mean, they are saying you can kind of do like headless uh, Linux servers and that kind of thing. You can run like an FTP from it. Probably not going to be powerful enough to run like Kodi or uh, anything like that. I no, imagine, but you but... could have it doing simple tasks, couldn't you? It would be good for little projects and homebrew stuff, I guess. I'm sure Dan will get one. Yeah. <laughs> I already looked at how to order it before. But they're saying it's uh, ideal for, have you heard of the Internet of Things? No. This is essentially like, you know, your toaster being connected to your Wi-Fi and doing oh, right, yeah, and yeah, microwaves. Yeah. This thing will be useful for that kind of thing as well, where you can, you know, essentially turn, you know, you can make like a security camera out of it or, you know, oh, right. anything you want to get online. Digital radio thing. Yeah, well, you, yeah. you want to do one of those. This yeah. would be smaller than the Raspberry Pi as well. Yeah, yeah. To make Probably. your own uh, internet radio. <laughs> Finally get it done. Now, there's a movie that you've been quite excited about for a while. Um, Steven Spielberg's behind this, Ready Player One. Yeah, and they've uh, announced who's playing the lead role, who's uh, Halliday, who's this, I'm not going to ruin it for you, but he's a very integral character to the film, and it is Simon Pegg. Okay. Which is great, which I'm really happy about, and they've been doing some filming in Birmingham. It's only about an hour away from us, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know the, the um, jewellery quarter in Birmingham? No. Well, this is. Actually, I actually got my girlfriend's, uh, well, now fiancé's engagement ring there, Ooh. you know, very, very stylish place. Um, but they've actually transformed it, like, into, like, post-apocalyptic America. Yeah, yeah, because in the book they've got stuff like people living in I've, towers I've, of I've got to ask, right, yeah. what is it? <laughs> Ready Player One is a book that was... Written about five years ago. Yeah. They've done a sequel. I've, see, I've, see, I've seen people go on about it before. Armageddon. It's basically about a world which is uh, everybody's into virtual reality to the point they're wearing these haptic suits and right. gloves. So there's, it's like total immersion. Yeah. And there's it's been all corrupted by, you know, big government yeah. companies and stuff. And there's a guy, Halliday, who was the first guy who programmed it initially, mm. who's being played by Simon Pegg. Right. And he's into retro games. So all of this kind of, he's hidden codes inside the virtual reality system yeah. to enable people to do stuff through playing games like Joust. Oh, right, okay. And all the old stuff. Okay, <clears throat> that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, so it's it's a good mix. And Steven Spielberg's directing it. So they yeah. say that the, I mean, they've been filming all over, did some scenes in London as well, but apparently they're dressing the area now and they're going to be actually filming the scenes early September, they're saying, in, in Birmingham. And let's face it, you know, if you're doing a movie about, like, you know, the apocalypse has happened and you want somewhere a bit run down, then Birmingham's obvious choice. <laughs> yeah, I am joking. For all our brubby listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I work in Birmingham, you know. I, I think but it's, but it's this film's place. going to be so big as well that um, it was one of the biggest books and it's going to be so big that with Star Wars coming out, they actually delayed the timing of it because they didn't want them to clash. Oh, wow. Okay. So, yeah, it's going to well, be massive. If it's going to compete with Star Wars, you know, it's good in my books. Yeah. <laughs> Just having Spielberg behind it as well, you know, it's going to be. This is the thing. So we'll keep you posted. Movies, you are, well, 2018, I think they're saying? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it should be. And people. they've already bought the rights. Spielberg's already bought the rights for the second book as well. Armageddon. He's obviously confident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, another blast from the past that could be coming back. You guys fans of Virtua Fighter back in the day? Oh, yeah. Always loved the uh, the big high jumps and... 
not being able to control your characters. <laughs> Gravity-defying yeah. game, wasn't it? Gravity didn't exist. I never saw much of it. I just saw an arcade unit, and I was a bit blown away. And that I, was about it. I remember playing it on the Sega Saturn at a cousin's house, uh, at like a party, a family gathering. I can't remember. It was about five years old or something. Came out in like 93, 94. So yeah, I would have been like four or five years old. And uh, I just I remember playing it and just thinking, this is crap. And even as a child, like you've got your rose tinted glasses on, and something like that would like look amazing. Floating like you're on the moon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like the original version on the Saturn, they rushed it, didn't they? And it wasn't yeah. really much better than the 32X version. And then they kind of re released it, didn't they? Yeah. A bit later on. When, and the second version was better. I mean, I did play it on the arcade, and I think for me, graphically, it was really impressive because it was kind of the first kind of polygon fighting yeah. game. Um, you know what it might have been? I think I might have played it a little bit later because I've. I've got memories of playing Tekken around the same time and Tekken came out a few years later so maybe it was just me comparing it to that as a child <laughs> yeah I mean, it hasn't aged very well at all the original game no. <laughs> I I, um, I set like a Sega emulator up on uh, on a new year randomly last oh, yeah. year I was playing it with my missus and like uh, she beat me every single round but mm. I, I obviously blame the game being awful of course you know, <laughs> yeah. can't control did you rage this. quit by any chance uh, I think I did actually yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this game's stupid let's put COD 4 on <laughs> I, I guess uh, <laughs> look at this guy <laughs> I guess Virtual Fighter also got its ass kicked by um, Soul Calibur or Soul Blade. When Soul that Blade, came out yeah, yeah. Pretty I mean, quickly afterwards, I remember when Virtual Fighter was originally around. I mean, it was like you know Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat were around. You know, people often think it was a later game, but it was '93 when it came mm, out. So you know, true. but the reason we're mentioning this is that there could be a new Virtual Fighter game on the way. Now, the reason they're saying this is because um, <laughs> it's a little bit of a tenuous link that Sega have just renewed the trademark for it this week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that definitely means it. That's it. It's on its way. Is it Virtual Fighter 6, would it be? Yeah. Well, well I yeah. mean, the last game wasn't that long ago. They're making out like, you know, oh, it's long overdue a sequel. It was only four years ago. Oh, really? Yeah, it was uh, Virtual Fighter 5 Final Showdown on the 360. Am I PS3? thinking of Dead or Alive, which came out like nine years ago now? Dead or Alive, yeah, it was four or five, the last one, Dead or Alive? Oh, I don't know. I just remember when the 360 came out, there was mm-hmm. a bunch of them then, and I thought they were the last ones. Yeah. Maybe well, they, just, I know was... they were just that bad. I just didn't see anything about them. The guy spent about three years perfecting the boobs on that. That was about it. <laughs> <laughs> just the boob, way they moved. physics. Yeah. <laughs> There was actually Dead or Alive last round on the PS4 that came out last year. So, oh. Yeah, that, that wasn't that long ago, actually. I was thinking oh. that I've got it on the PS4. Oh, there you go, you've got me. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it, it's only been four years since the last Virtua Fighter, but I played the last one, and it's nothing like the original games. No, is it not? You got like it, It's a fighting game, obviously, but yeah, yeah. that's about all it has in common and some of the characters. So, you know, a lot of the Sega sites are like, oh, yeah, we need a new one, but... Um, then again, you look at Sega now, and obviously they're doing the uh, that new old school Sonic game, aren't they? Sonic Mania. Yeah, that's old true. trademarks coming back. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe they're getting sensible and thinking, right? You know, we've actually got some of these big franchises that are very famous, and Nintendo make a living on that, don't they? It's I like, know, but you know, in true Sega fashion, at the very last minute, they'll go, you know what? Let's yeah. just make it. Let's set it in the year three thousand or something <laughs> bollocks like that. Let's make them werewolves <laughs> and just release it in Japan. Yeah, <laughs> nowhere else. <laughs> So we will be keeping an eye on that. You know, if we hear any more Virtua Fighter news, we'll of course let you know. <laughs> we want it on an arcade, though. You know, that's, that's the best way to play. Oh Virtua yeah, Fighter, definitely. Obviously, everyone's getting in on this uh, little mini consoles wars now as it's happening. We yeah. talked about the Sega one last week, and we've got the mini NES on the way. And I it, think we should call it mini console wars. It's, it's, well, it's, it is essentially, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Mini console wars. So the Atari Flashbacks had an update. Yeah, again, <laughs> uh, number seven. You've got one, haven't you, Dan? Yeah, I think mine's a. Uh, five or a six I can't keep up yeah (laughs) but I've said this story on the show it was one of our early episodes I mentioned this I've never really been a big Atari gamer no nor have I you know it was like I was only like 
it was before my time, like 77 or something, the Atari came out. Even though I am ancient, it was still before my time. <laughs> um, but my girlfriend's dad's really into it, and he said, oh, you know, get, get down one of these Atari things. He's into old games. He'll enjoy that. So I got one for Christmas. <laughs> Um, Careful what you say. Yeah, <laughs> without knowing I had one for Christmas, we were talking about Atari or something before. Yeah, like, on Christmas Eve, for some reason I said to my girlfriend, I was like, you know, oh yeah, I'm not really into Atari. It's they're a bit boring those games, aren't they? A bit simplistic. <laughs> Next morning, Christmas morning comes, I open it, Atari flashback, a big smile on my face. She's like, <laughs> but um, I mean, we did hook it up and we have played it a few I, times. I know Dan's uh, fiance well, and. Uh, I can imagine the situation. You, you can picture that face. I can I'm picture that about, face. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, we did We did eventually, you know, get out on Christmas Day and, like, her dad's into Atari, so we enjoyed playing, like, you know, Missile Command and all those old uh, Atari games, which, you know, the, the good little pick-up-and-play games. The thing about this is, though, I think they are releasing this because of all the hype that's yeah. going on at the moment. Well, Just that, jumping on the bandwagon. Yeah, they're also releasing Atari Ultimate Portable Gaming System, so it's not just a flashback. They're going to have a little... It looks like a Game Gear. Yeah, it looks a little bit like a Lynx. A Lynx. There you go. (laughs) And what they're saying about that, though, is I think it's pretty cool. There's actually an SD card slot in it as well, so you can play homebrews and download games. That's a little bit more interesting. It's a bit different, isn't it, from the others? Well, that's the thing. I mean, we're talking about the uh, the Nintendo one. It's got to that of like 30 or 40 built-in games. Yeah, and that's it. You can't even download new games onto it. Yeah, I think that's really like a missed sale, if you will, there. They've missed missed the mark there. I mean, if they just put a little cartridge slot on there, I can't imagine it would have been very hard. It probably cost them about two p, you know, or something like that in production, or even like you say, a little SD card. But, but maybe they're thinking slot. they could stretch more money out of it if they only have twenty games and then release twenty different ones or have different versions. Yeah, maybe, maybe or... a few years down the line. But then again, they've kind of got all the the top hitters on there. Well, I, th- I think they should have done is though, because obviously they sell these old Nintendo games anyway on like the Wii U, the, yeah. like the you know the arcade on there. They just put a little Wi-Fi chip in there, make it collect to like you know the Nintendo That's store. That's an idea, yeah. Yeah, they sell loads on there, well, but you know, with this mini uh, Mega Drive one, Genesis one that they've just done, I was watching Pat the NES Punk, yeah, and he was saying that they've actually had to remove some good games on it, so they've removed the whole Streets of Rage series. Oh, really? To put on some other games. So it's like a compromise, you know. You can only get twenty games on there, so it's like <laughs> that's the storage space. On the new the Sega one, yeah, yeah, they've knocked off Streets of Rage. Yeah, the whole yeah. one, two, and three. Yeah, get out! I <laughs> know. Ah, no, I don't believe that until I see it. <laughs> well, uh, we, we actually did a little. Uh, we played a clip of the, the audio on that machine. It's the um, oh yeah, yeah. It, it's not the best emulation yeah, to be fair. Yeah, so uh, I'll be staying away from that one anyway. But I think it is kind of cool that you know these big companies are kind of looking back now at their their history and seeing that people are interested in these retro systems and re-releasing them. It's all good for the retro scene, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Now, before we get on to uh, our main event this week, Clint from LGR, um, a guest that we had on the show, it was one of our early episodes, Mr. Biffo from uh, Digitizer on Teletext, who runs, actually, it's kind of a sequel to Digitizer, if you remember that on uh, Teletext back in the 90s, called Digitizer 2000. Yeah, I remember. And we he, had him on, didn't we? We did, so. yeah. It was one of our early episodes, but he's done a really good article called Modern Game Logos Are Rubbish. Yep. (laughs) I didn't realise this until I looked through this list. I'm just looking through it now. And you know what it reminds me of? You know in like after Inception came out, around that kind of time, around 2010, there was a lot of trailers, uh, movie trailers, where literally the trailer would just show you a little bit and then it would literally just go... <laughs> I know exactly <laughs> what you mean. And like you literally just Flashing. like your heart's racing. You're just like, oh, best film ever, but it's not. That's what it reminds me of. Literally, all these games, The Last of Us, Tomb Raider, Uncharted, and it literally just reminds me of 
blah, just black text. <laughs> That's what it is. Like, look what we've got here kind of thing. Well, he's kind of gone through some of the, you know, amazing logos from the past, stuff like Galaxian and, uh, you know, Streets of Rage and Rainbow Islands. A lot of these, I mean, you look back then, a lot of these had to be on kind of the, you know, the top of an arcade cabinet and yeah. illuminated and attract you in the arcades. So well, yeah. They're very bright and colourful back then, weren't they? A lot of artwork on the sides, a lot of characters and stuff. And there is, you know, we even covered, um, there's like books that are released, you know, coffee table books about arcade artwork yeah. that were that, that good. But now, he makes a good point. It's like you said then, every one of them is the same now. And they're all in this kind of, you know, two-colour, just black white and white. And black. Yeah, That's black it. and white. And it's like, oh, they've got some sort of dystopian, apocalyptic dust across <laughs> yeah. them. It's like, oh, I've not seen that before. <laughs> you know what I think's affected it? I think it's web design, because... Everybody's going to make websites that kind of look similar. And mm-hmm. where, when Web 2.0 came out, there was this, a look which was more typeface and minimal. font-like. Minimal, yeah, minimal, yeah. yeah. And now Web 3.0 is like that, and it's it's all just incredibly boring. It's not, uh, you know, you go on some retro sites and the colours, they're booming out of the site. You go on modern game sites <laughs> and it's grey. Yeah, what happens in Neon? Yeah, <laughs> bring back neon. <laughs> well, he, he, he makes a good point here as well. No Man's Sky logo. That is like, you know, it's the, the most boring. It's just literally a minimalistic font. Yeah. I think you actually spotted which font it is. It said, yeah, Geo Sans Light. Yeah. <laughs> Chopped off the little lines in the A's, that's it. That's all yeah, it's, it's, more, it's more about the popularity of the font and which ones designers are sharing. They've also cut the, off yeah. the tiny bit of the flick of the S. You know, just to get that little bit of coolness in there, you know. <laughs> but it's like, he also mentions like this, you know, you mentioned then the kind of, uh, it looks like it's got a bit of a scratch or a bit of dust in it or something. Yeah. I love this quote from him here. He goes, oh, look, it's a tweaked version of the Impact font again. And somebody's wiped their bum across it very lightly. Everyone's a critic, right? <laughs> <laughs> but he even talks about logos from the past. Now, the Space Invaders logo, if you remember that, what that looked like. And that was kind of facing forward. And it does look intimidating, like it's kind of coming down yeah. on you, like the game is itself. Like the game, it does, yeah. And but that looks more comic book to me, like you know the the, the older ones look more. But that was the thing in the seventies, yeah, yeah. That was, that was the, the style. That was the yeah. style. <laughs> but I also guess it's because they're all using Photoshop to do this. They're all using the same program, mm-hmm. and they're all probably using the same filters. Yeah, <laughs> and this, downloading the font from the same area. Originality. So yeah, all these old ones would have been made on. I don't know, paper and transferred across onto some program or, you know, it, it wouldn't all be really similar in industry. Well, I think... The, <laughs> Industrial are, kind of production. There were actual artists then, weren't there? Whereas now the more graphic artists that do them, I yeah, guess. Yeah, so yeah. that's where difference But then from. a graphic artist means you get say, trained I, I, on Photoshop it, to do it, filters. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't unheard of for, you know, comic book artists to be hired to make Nintendo yeah, box art yeah. and stuff like that. So like Dan says, now it's just... It's just Graphic artists. Who what, do it. what did you say about Loom the other day? It had now made with real artists. Yeah, so, yeah you know yeah. this game. Yeah, yeah they, they were boasting about that. The actual game yeah. was made by real artists as well. Yeah. But I remember, like you know, in the eight bit days, going out and buying games on like the Commodore sixteen and plus four. And uh, but then, like you'd buy games in the shop based solely on the artwork on yeah. the front. You have a look at yeah. the screenshots on the back, but because graphics were so simplistic in the eight bit days, and the screenshots lie. <laughs> the screenshots, <laughs> yeah, you, you had like a Commodore sixty four, and the screenshots were from like a Neo Geo or something on the back. <laughs> but um, you know, I think then it was probably a lot more important that they kind of grabbed you in with the you know really impressive artwork on the front of the box. But 
I mean, come on, game designers, sort your logos out. We're going to move on. It's what looks nice on Steam now, isn't it? <laughs> it still needs to jump out, though. Come yeah. on, you're looking the same. So thank you so much for checking out episode number 33 of the Retro Hour. We will be back again next Friday. You can download the show from iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, SoundCloud, all your favourite podcast clients. And now, the main event. For the next 40 minutes on the Retro Hour, we're going to be talking to um, our first YouTuber we've had on the show. Yeah, Lazy Game Reviews. Now, this is a guy who, um, if you're into classic PC gaming, oddware, thrifting, we love that series that he does too, (laughs) Uh, The Sims. This guy is by far one of the most creative and talented guys on YouTube. So for the next half an hour, here he is, Clint from Lazy Game Reviews, and we'll catch you next Friday. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast. It is our pleasure to welcome this week's special guest, Clint from LGR. Now, we'll get the formalities out of the way, first of all. Clint, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me on. Now, we're all massive fans of your YouTube channel, but before we get onto that, we thought it might be quite interesting to find out a bit more about you. So, where did it all start for you then? What was your first computer experience? Oh, man, my first computer experience at all. That, that would have to be in... Uh... And I was about five years old. It's in kindergarten, and we had a computer class at the local school. So it was actually an Apple IIe, and they had this basic sort of text program on there. And they showed you, you know, teach you how to how to type and how to send things to a printer and how to save things to a five and a quarter inch floppy disk. And that just it blew my mind because the the floppy drive was somewhere. Just attached to the computer, but off to the side. The printer was on the other side of the room. I had no idea how any of it worked, but it just it amazed me to no end. And uh, ever since that point, I just wanted to be anywhere around computers. So my parents ended up getting me a, or well, getting the whole family, but it ended up being the one I used, a, a Packard Bell 486 PC uh, about a year or so later. And wasn't the same thing as the Apple II. I couldn't play the cool games that I saw in there, like Oregon Trail, but whatever. <laughs> it, it, it did DOS, so I, I, I really started to learn DOS at that point, and that just went on from there. Yeah, because I mean, you know, at that point, we're talking like MS-DOS, what was it, like 5 or 6, would it have been around that era? I had MS-DOS 5 on mine, yeah. It uh, came with that and Windows 3.1, so. What kind of stuff did you mainly do on the machine, then? Was it mainly gaming? Uh, mainly games, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, six years old, what do you want to do? I, my uncle, he had uh, access to a local bulletin board system, so he would download all the, the games that he could on there. And, of course, it was, you know, 1,200 baud dial-up, so they were really small games, mostly from the early 80s. So I had games like Paratrooper and this really simple puzzle game called Set the Hostages Free and uh, some card games and, and a couple of clones of arcade things and stuff, you know, a Frogger game that never worked and things like that. So it, it was mostly that kind of stuff. But, you know, as it as time went on, I, I ended up going to stores and finding games. I'm like, oh, my goodness, you can go to stores and get these, too. I don't have to have to rely on my uncle's generosity. So uh, at, at that point, shareware was the big thing, at least a- around with where I lived and everything. There were a bunch of shareware distributors. And for those that don't know, that was sort of a kind of a demo service and it would give you a third or a big chunk of the game for free and then if you wanted the rest of the game you'd pay for that Uh, but otherwise you'd get tons of really good games for nothing at all or next to nothing in the store so commander keen duke nukem things like that and uh yeah it was mostly games and of course schoolwork when i had to (laughs) If, (laughs) if i had to do that okay fine but after the games after the games, uh, and unless I could convince my parents that the educational games 
were worth me playing even longer. <laughs> so we would, uh, you know, go to try and find educational stuff that was also games because I was homeschooled at the time. So they kind of treated it as schoolwork. So it was a win-win for me. I could be on the computer longer and I was technically learning, I think. So you were one of the rare guys that actually paid for shareware. <laughs> and didn't have the cut-down version. It's true, yeah. We did. I think the first one that I got that was um, a full version shareware game was Word Rescue. And again, that was under the guise of it being educational. But I mean, I mean that, that's about as educational as, I don't know, just it's not. <laughs> it's just a platformer. So yeah, we did pay for a, a few of them. And then even the ones in the store that we got, you could also, since downloading them was so expensive through dial-up, it was like 3 or $4 to get even the free ones in the store. You just basically paid them to put it on a disc for you. So you'd pick something out from a catalog, and they would write it to a disc right there in the store, or they would have some pre-made for just a couple bucks. So it was really affordable, um, way, way less uh, money than it would be to have an online service. So, yeah. That's Paid amazing because uh, being in Europe, we didn't have any kind of stores that you could go in and get full shareware copies. We'd have to send off to America and then receive discs back. So Many months later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it's fascinating. I've never really thought of the, what maybe the difference would be. And I know the PC stuff wasn't necessarily as... Uh, you know, well, because like I didn't even know an Amiga existed until I was like in my twenties. They were massive, so, yeah. right? And and that's what's like just amazed me about some of the differences because it was an American machine and yet it was more popular over there in my experience. So, I mean, I, I love diving into that stuff now, but yeah, back then it was all MS DOS, Windows three, and and that was it. And it was sold mostly in stores. Well, obviously, I mean, I know consoles were massive in America as well. Were you, um, were m many of your friends using PCs at the time, or were a lot of kids at school on like <laughs> Segas and Nintendos? I was the weird one. Yeah, I had the <laughs> I had the computer, and my friends they had, you know, um, uh, NES, you know, a Nintendo, maybe a Super Nintendo. Later on, I, I don't even remember anyone getting one of those until like 1994 or five. But um, yeah, it was it was. My friends had the consoles, I had the computer, and a couple friends later on got computers once they were, uh, you know, dirt cheap. I mean, you know, computers eventually just got so cheap because things were moving on so fast. So six months ago, that computer model was dirt cheap, and then the new one, you know, whatever. So they would get the cheap ones, and it took a while. I, I was the weird one for a while, and I, I thought there was this weird... Uh, sort of thing going on where I would try to convince myself that the computers were better than the consoles or the consoles were like but and, and truthfully though I was always jealous because they could play like Sonic the Hedgehog and Super Mario World and I had you know shareware paratrooper and things like <laughs> stuff like that but I was happy I think <laughs> I didn't have Duke Nukem I'm just going to put that out there there you go <laughs> it's true I did have Duke Nukem I didn't have a sound card I couldn't have any sound so that was a big thing I wanted was sound but uh, still you know Th that internal PC speaker I do remember that sound that's all I had yeah and uh, oh man hearing like music on a Sega <laughs> crazy crazy stuff well I had a friend actually who um, he had the only guy I knew at school who had a PC he had like an Amstrad PC and that ran MS-DOS, and everyone else had Amigas and Atari STs, and that was one thing that he, he his jaw dropped when he heard, like, Amiga music. When I first heard Amiga music, my jaw dropped. I'm like, wait, this was made in, like, what, 1985? And it had music that sounded better than anything on a PC I'd ever heard. So, 
yeah, that that was crazy. I, the most I ever heard on uh, like a friend's computer later on, he had an ad lib card in there, and that kind of sounded a bit like a Sega Genesis. So I thought that was pretty cool. But with the Amiga, with the samples and the mod music and tracker tunes and stuff, I there were voices. How could a computer make voices? I it was just that was so cool. It must have been a, a revolution then when you got your sound blaster and could hear Duke Nukem in the full full vocal yeah. range. When I learned Duke Nukem could speak, that was pretty life-changing. <laughs> I think that was for everybody, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. So um, what, what made you decide to get into YouTube videos? What made you think one day, you know what, let's chuck this online? <laughs> I, you know, that just sort of happened by chance as far as starting my channel. So I, I don't know, when I was a teenager and then going into college and stuff too, that was a, uh, a thing of mine, uh, just a hobby where I would make videos for myself, my friends. And some of them were about games and some of them were about movies. And one of the first videos I ever posted on YouTube, which was before I started my channel even, it was a, it was a video that was, you know, Spider-Man and Darth Vader arguing and then Duke Nukem like comes in there. And it was a Duke Nukem Forever thing <laughs> because Duke Nukem Forever still hadn't come out. Yeah. And this was in like 2005, so it really <laughs> didn't know it would go on for how many more years. But... <laughs> So, uh, yeah, and then some people watched that, and I was like, all right, cool. So I just started posting more things, and at that point, Angry Video Game Nerd was like the only guy doing uh, videos about old games. On yeah. uh, It wasn't even YouTube. This was like, I don't know what it was. It was some weird service that was um, uh, one of those things where you could post stuff, and it wasn't very good. And <laughs> But anyway, you could watch them, and that was sort of wild to me because I thought, hey, I've, I've got all these old computer games, and things like that that I don't see anybody talking about. So I'll just put up a video on one or two of them, and uh, it worked out. I, I ended up putting one of them up, out on the Sega CD first. That happened to go up right around the same time that uh, James Rolfe put up his. So I ended up getting some... <laughs> it seemed some, like you were ripping him off a bit, but... <laughs> it did. I got a bunch of accusations of people ripping him off, but I didn't even know he was doing that. And then they just sort of... Uh, Related videos were just becoming a thing on YouTube, so I got yeah. a, a bunch of hits. I'm like, oh my god, a thousand views in a week! Like it was crazy. So I just started doing them, and uh, it was a hobby for a long time. It wasn't until 2013 that I started doing this sort of as a profession. Oh really? So talking of it being a hobby, how big is your collection? Because obviously, it always starts as a hobby, and then it kind of becomes a uh, an addiction, <laughs> as we all know. <laughs> yeah, the collection is ridiculous at this point i i have a, a building rented out that i keep everything in now because oh, wow, that's pretty I, incredible <laughs> yeah I, there's a around i i don't even know if i had to guess four thousand something games and they're they're boxed games so these are not small these are they're huge and um you know just a hundred something computers from around the world and just i mean many hundreds more of really odd hardware and software and just yeah, it's pretty. It's it takes up three rooms over there in that building now. So, so where do you find where do you find most of it? Do you end up at flea markets, or is it just an eBay, or is it a lot of swapping with friends and contacts? Or at first, it was mostly just local uh, thrifting stores. Yeah. So they're incredibly just filled with stuff. I mean, a lot of other places in the country and even outside of the country don't seem to have the same selection I do. So I guess I got lucky. I don't know if it's the area that I'm in or what, but I found a ton of them there. And yeah, the rest was eBay for a while. But since I started doing YouTube, um, a lot of it has come in from just donations from viewers that say, hey, I want this covered or I don't want this anymore in my house. Can you take it and give oh, it a wow. good home? <laughs> I feel bad throwing it away. Like, you know, 
So uh, there's all sorts of things like that 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 uh, show up on my doorstep every single day now. I mean, there's you know, I wake up and I'll have five or six packages waiting at at the post office or something. So. Did you um, keep your collection all along then, or was it something like you got rid of and kind of got back into again and like kind of picked up these machines? <laughs> yeah, I got. At one point, my collection from as a kid, it was all literally set on fire <laughs> because you know parents are like oh it's taking up too much space you got to get rid of these things you don't play anymore so 12 13 years old what are you going to do so yeah that stuff was all literally burned in a fire to get rid of um but it, it's maybe that traumatized me maybe that's why i'm collecting so much now it's like to try to get back at like oh you know i i can't believe all this stuff was just gone and then i'm trying to get some memories back and i guess it got out of control well uh one thing that we love watching is um your thrift store series because we don't have any of those stores in the uk and it's just really nice to see the kind of different items in america and all the wood grain did you have any influence from flea market madness or was it a total separate thing from pat the Nespunk? you know i've never actually seen that series so it's it's very much a separate thing i, I would say if anything it was inspired by um, Luke Morse One. He's a guy that went around to a bunch of stores in Japan, uh, like hard off thrift stores and things like that. And he just went around with a camera inside of these stores and finding just, you know, old things. And he, he stopped doing those for years. And uh, I don't think he's done one in like four years now, but I kind of miss seeing those. And, you know, I figured, why not? I've got so many things around me at one point that I just figured, ah, I'll just record these. And it wasn't until I got these uh, camera glasses to record with that because I didn't want to go around holding a camera that looks weird so I'm going to go around with creepy camera glasses instead I wondered how you did that actually so it is glasses it is glasses (laughs) they're they're these little like hundred dollar Chinese things with a really tiny camera in them and um, it just they just look like glasses and they're they're out of the way so you know I just try my best not to like get anybody's personal space (laughs) and then just you know point it at the um, at the stuff that I'm looking at it works out very well I think one thing as well, I wonder is because over here we have um, like car boot sales and we don't find very much at all there. We find stuff like, you know, maybe a PlayStation 2, copy of FIFA or something. That's all we ever find. Yeah. Um, but looking at your videos, there's actually some bargains that you find in thrift stores over there. What, what's kind of some of the best things that you've found? I, I would say probably still my favorite is finding um, an original IBM PC XT. Just, it was just sitting there and it had, you know, I mean, and for those that don't know, that is the pretty much the second PC ever made, at least as we know the term PC today. So, you know, Intel chipset, um, it had the original five and a quarter inch floppy disk drive, the full height one, the really bigger one. And, um, you know, other stuff, it had a hard drive still in there. It's a 20 megabyte. So it's, this is a really pretty hard to find machine in any kind of working condition. You'll pay hundreds of dollars online for a, a complete one and there it was just sitting there and so I, I occasionally it's the computers that i would mostly go for you don't find them as much anymore since they have a policy now where they don't actually accept computers that look older than like seven years or something so i think they throw them away now but um occasionally one will will sort of pull through and, and then of course anything else that is just really strange like you find an open box of condoms there and it's like okay well this stands out for a different reason <laughs> You'll never know what you'll find, but uh, <laughs> any of the computers or games. And that, you didn't pick the condoms up, there. No, I don't quite <laughs> trust Goodwill condoms. I don't think that is a wise investment. <laughs> God, I've seen sex toys at a car boot sale before as well. <laughs> it's not good. I've I've seen one or two 
Yeah, and I don't think that they realized that's what they were because they were in with like the um, like the home decor, like candlesticks. <laughs> I'm like, that's not a candlestick. That is something else. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, you've covered uh, a lot of systems that were bigger in Europe, like the Sinclair and the Spectrum, um, the Amiga and the Atari ST. Um, so not many US YouTubers talk about them. Uh, were you aware of these systems back in the day, or do you find them interesting now? Just Is it something you just came across these days? That was definitely thanks to YouTube. Um, people like Steve Benway covering so many things like that, and I don't know. I, I found it endlessly fascinating, especially the Spectrum. It was so tiny, and yet in so many ways it reminded me of the really old DOS games that I used to play, and it had a similar little beeper built in and those weird rubber keys and everything about it. It just appealed to me. So I've got three or four of those now. I mean, those are just so fun to mess with. And there's such a community around them. Like, yeah. you know, there's there's add-ons and people still making games for it. And the homebrew scene is alive and well. Like, it's it's really neat. So that kind of stuff, it appealed to me because I had never heard of it at all until um, it was between, you know, people like like uh, Mr. Benway on YouTube and then Retro Gamer Magazine. They started selling that here around 2007. And um, it was really expensive, but I mean, I would pay for every issue, you know, and uh, it was great because it was just, it would give you these lists of these games that I had never heard of. I don't know what sensible soccer was, but I wanted to play it. <laughs> so, you know, I would get an Amiga. Um, and again, most of those were sent to me from viewers that just thought it would be really cool to see them them shown on here. So I've got an Amiga from the Netherlands, uh, an Atari ST from, I think, Switzerland, uh, Amiga 1200 from Germany. West Germany, rather, it's the very specific one. Uh, Amstrad, a couple of Amstrad PCs. Now I've been meaning to cover. It's a PC, I think, fifteen twelve, black and white monochrome thing with weird Amstrad stuff, like the power supplies in the monitor and things like that. So, yeah, those things are fascinating. Nice. You talked about magazines. Um, when you were a kid, did you have many kind of PC magazines? Because when we were kids, the news agents were dominated by computer mags. There were tons. I don't know what it was like in the U.S. You know, I really didn't see them. If they were around, I certainly never saw them. Um, it was mostly for the consoles. You know, all I ever remember seeing was like Nintendo Power. There was a Sega one, and I think that there was also one for it's just sort of a general all-around thing. Um, there were PC magazines, but they were mostly about building PCs. They didn't really cover the games that I was into until much later on. Like when uh, I, I guess the sort of 3D revolution started, that's that's when I started seeing computer game magazines talking about the games that I wanted. But maybe that's just because I wasn't looking. I don't know. Um, it was mostly because of the demo discs at that point that I wanted to get them because it was really, uh, you know, dial up, forget it. It would take forever to download a 40 megabyte demo or something. So it'd come with a CD and it'd have like 20 games on there. So, so yeah. Did, did you find yourself with a PlayStation then in 1995, or did you try and stick <laughs> to your guns? <laughs> I, you know what, the first console I ever bought was an Xbox 360. Oh, really? <laughs> I oh, wow. I, I had um, a couple of hand-me-down consoles at, at some point, like around 1999 is when I got a Sega Genesis um, from a friend of mine, and then around 2000, 2001, somebody handed me down their old Nintendo entertainment system, and but yeah, again, I wasn't terribly into those. I just I stuck to the computer stuff because it made way more sense to me because you could upgrade it, you could get your own games for it, you could make your own games. I, I loved modifying games, so you know, putting in my own sounds and textures and it, the consoles just seemed so limited in comparison that it never made much sense 
to spend money on something like that for me when I could just have such a more versatile system. And um, But yeah, once the 360 came around, I mean, it, it got really cheap at one point. So I was just like, yeah, sure, I'll get one. And I've, I've gotten all the main consoles since then, just mainly because I've been a reviewer and I like to try to stay well well-rounded, so to speak, I, I guess. But uh, yeah, I'll still stick to the PC. It's, it's my primary gaming system for sure. Well, you mentioned before about this um, you know, very impressive collection you've got now. Are there any systems that you really want but you haven't got your hands on yet? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's quite a few. Um, some of the more uncommon things uh, are really what I'm getting to at this point because I think I have just about everything that you would think of as being a collectible system or computer that, I mean, you know, I have the Commodores and the Atari things and even I mean, I've got some Dragon machines and things like that. So all sorts of I mean, I have a Thompson M05 from France. It's like, you know, I, I'm starting to run out of stuff and more recently I've been getting into Japanese computers. So I just got a, an NEC PC8801 and that is the Mark One. This is the original one that most people don't even realize exists because it doesn't play very many games um, it, it, it doesn't even have a very good graphics or sound thing at all. Like a lot of people know of that system or that, that series of systems for the later like Konami and Bandai games, but uh, this one is it's way older. So I got that from Japan, and I'd love to get the like a Sharp X sixty eight thousand. Oh yeah. Or um, one of the FM Towns computers, uh, a Sharp X one. Um, pretty much, <laughs> pretty much any of those sort of sixteen bit era. Uh, computers from Japan they just they look great and the games on them are pretty legendary so I'd, I'd love to get into more of that scene all of this must take a hell of a lot of research and kind of background information especially when you're putting a YouTube video out because there can be so many people that comment and criticize and go oh no that's incorrect how do you yeah. do your research well I've, I've pretty much grown to accept that somebody's going to say i'm incorrect no matter what so i, I try to do my best with the research for sure and uh, most of that does come from online resources so i scour a lot of uh, google's newspaper archive they have um a, a news archive that is just fantastic it's all searchable so you can find a whole lot of original sources there they also have a lot of magazines and um, if it's not Google's magazine uh, archive, then archive.org has a massive amount of them as well. And uh, other, uh, some publications like Computer Gaming World, they actually put theirs online. So it, it's mostly that kind of stuff. If I can find where people were talking about them at the time, I find that to be a far better resource than, say, looking on Wikipedia, where that's people now talking about them. I would like to you know, try to find sources that are a little closer to the original happenings. So it, it's mostly newspapers, magazines, and books, if I can find them. You make an interesting point there as well, because we, we've talked about this in our show before, that we often think that, you know, maybe YouTube and that kind of thing changes people's opinions on uh, systems and games over time, because you look at stuff now that's considered pretty crap, but then you look at the reviews that came out at the time, and often they were praised. I mean, do you think these opinions do change over time because of the, the current media that we've got? Absolutely. I think it's really fascinating to go and you look at the universal praise for something like The Seventh Guest, and I think that game is just not good at all. And I know a lot of people, too, that they find it infuriating to play now, or something like Myst. It's not aged terribly well. It's still very well loved, respected, and at the time it was you know absolutely just groundbreaking, but... Yeah, there's a lot of things that I do think change, and they get much more of a bad rap as time goes on. 
and uh, <laughs> and that could be that could be interesting. So I'm not necessarily trying to go against the grain, but I do like to try to find a different way of looking at a lot of these games because I don't know. I, I think that it's it's worth respecting them for what they were intended to be when they came out, as opposed to what people think of them now. Uh, I think I was pretty unfair to games when I first started. And I, I would cover some things and just really trash them. And people were like, yeah, but at the time, it wasn't that bad. I'm like, yeah, all right, maybe that's kind of fair. So, I've noticed yeah, that watching you over the years. You've, you've got a bit softer on games. <laughs> I found a lot of your true. earlier reviews. Uh, you were quite a lot mean. Of that, <laughs> a lot of that came from actually talking to the developers, too. because, oh, really? And you know they would contact me afterward. I had this one guy... Um, he was uh, one of the developers in Streets of Sim City, and he's like, "Yeah, oh yeah, that game was awful. It was really bad." But at the same time, you know, I'm glad somebody's at least talking about it. I'm like, "Oh, that's nice." And then I had somebody else come along, and they said uh, they were completely, you know, the, the the one guy was okay with it, and then this other person, they were pretty offended that I hated this game. And I'm like, "But it was crap. <laughs> and it was not good at all." And so I try to get this sort of a middle ground. I, I want to speak my piece and say if something is junk or not. But I also want to try and get across, like, if something was technically impressive or if it was done by, like, one person, then I do want to at least get that out there. You know, there was this game, Extreme Boards and Blades, that I covered. And it's the worst. It is the worst. It is so bad. But it turns out that it was made under mandate from Activision back in the day to be something to sort of capitalize on the extreme sports craze of the 1990s. And they were given, I think, six weeks to make this thing. And it was just, it was an impossible task. And for what they put together, I guess it was okay. But it's still the worst game. It's still the worst. Well, one thing you mentioned there was The Sims. And uh, your channel, you can't help but ignore The Sims, seeing that most of your videos, the top rated ones, are Sims videos. So do you have a love for Sims and Maxis and the kind of whole past of sim world (laughs) yeah yeah the the sim universe or whatever you'd like to yeah the sims games mean an awful lot to me because um i think sim city was the very first game that i got as a kid that wasn't a shareware game you know we went to the store and it was given to me and i think for a birthday and i was just really into skyscrapers and, and architecture and all these things and so my parents got it for me thinking that it might be interesting and that that was the first time I ever realized that you could have a simulation of the real world in a computer. And it felt it felt so real. Like I, I could even though you couldn't see the Sims in Sim City, I could in my mind I could imagine them there. It just it opened my whole brain to this new category of stuff that you could do on a computer, like simulating a, a real world, a, a real system of stuff. And so yeah, ever since then, um I, I just followed all the Maxis Sim games. I own every single one of them, and even the really obscure ones that nobody cares about. I mean, Sim Tunes and you know, Unnatural Selection and all these things. Uh, the Sims came out, and there was this just sort of an extension of that. It was like Sim City, but on a much smaller level, so you could control the Sims. And I, you know, I sort of covered Sims Three on a whim, and that ended up being the most popular video on my channel. And I'm like, all right, fine, people want to see this. I'm just going to cover all of them. So I have. And um, <laughs> it tends to be pretty popular still. Have you got any connection with Maxis then? None at all. I have never even spoke to anyone there outside of like a couple random tweets. Um, EA has started sending me codes to review Sims 4 packs recently, which is weird because I usually trash them. <laughs> uh, but they're like, okay, that's fine. We need the, con- the, cr- the criticism. And I'm like, 
All right, cool. Well, I'm going to criticize the crap out of you guys because what you're doing with these latest packs is awful. But, um, I mean, it's my dream to, like, be able to interview Will Wright someday or something like that. I would love to just meet the guy. And he was a, just a genius in, as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, yeah, no, just a really big fan. Well, Tech Tales is one of our um, favorite series that you do. Um, we learn, like, so much about these really obscure companies. How did that come about then, that series? That was inspired by a lot of things that I used to watch and then were they were no longer a thing. Um, G4 TV, the TV station, used to have the show called Icons that was very similar. They would you know talk about a game or a company or a developer or something and just give you sort of their life story in about 20 minutes. And I thought that was great. And then the show just disappeared. And then it came back as this horribly bastardized version of it. And I'm like, oh, this is just forget it. And so... I don't know. I, it kind of came out of doing the research for my other videos where I will talk about a game or a computer or something along those lines. And I really like diving into the history of how these things came about. So, you know, when I covered the Amiga, I would talked about the story of how Jack Tramiel and all the Atari people were just this weird fighting going back and forth and really fascinating stuff. And I figured why not spin that off and sort of turn it into something more complete like the Icons show was. And uh, I'm happy it's taken off because those are some of the most satisfying videos for me to make. I mean, even when it's something that I think nobody's going to care about, people still watch. And it's, it's I don't know, I guess there's something there that's struck a chord. I'm happy it has. Is it like one company or, or product that you wish was still around? <laughs> yeah, th- uh, it would probably be 3DFX, at least the ones that I've covered. They're the ones that I think were, they just shot to the very top of computer graphics cards. And I mean, they made the graphics hardware for arcade systems, the best ones for computers, home computers. They were going to do the graphics chipset for the Dreamcast. I mean, they were on top of the world. And they shot themselves in the foot and the face and everywhere else so many times that they just became impossible to maintain. And they imploded in the course of about five years. And uh, NVIDIA bought their rotting corpse, and that was that. Uh, they could bring them back if they wanted. I kind of would like to see an NVIDIA voodoo card. <laughs> that would be super cool, but I doubt that'll happen. So um, we established earlier on that YouTube, well, making these videos and YouTubing is now your full-time career. Was yeah. was that scary, making that step from like leaving your job and making that decision to go into that? You know, I thought it would be, but it turned out to be incredibly easy when okay. I made it because I... You know, I didn't make any money on the show at all until uh, the middle of 2012. And at that point, I had been doing it for many years. And, you know, it was at that point that I started, I had signed up with a, a network and they were able to, you know, give me a little bit of profit sharing. Because before that, YouTube said, I don't have enough original content on my channel to qualify for a partnership. So I just never had one and I, I'd given up. But it was at that point that the multi channel networks and, Things like Machinima and stuff were really taking off, and I didn't want to go with Machinima because they seemed like evil. So I ended up going with uh, the Maker Studios people, and that I was like, "Holy crap!" All of a sudden, I was making money on everything that I posted, and so it, as soon as it went one penny over what I was making at my day job, I quit my day job. I didn't even give them a notice. I just left because that was the worst place to work, and I was just like, "Well, I'm done. I'm I'm gonna do this." What was your day job? My day job was designing custom picture frames. Oh, wow. It was a little boring. I, I liked the hands-on aspect of it, but I didn't like anything else. So, and, and most of what it was was everything else. So the sales, trying to convince people to buy this overpriced junk, I just didn't like it. So 
I was ready to move on, that's for sure. Um, one other set of videos that you do is Oddware, and we love that because with Amiga and Atari, we had weird tracker balls and all these kind of rubbish light pens and stuff. <laughs> like, What's your most exciting piece of Oddware that you've covered for you? <laughs> it depends on what you call exciting. Um, I mean, a lot of people would point directly to the sexy mouse, which was uh, a mouse shaped like a woman's torso. That was my first and... thought straight away. I was like, you sexy mouse. <laughs> it's got to be the sexy. That's, that's pretty exciting for wrong reasons. But uh, yeah, it, the, the one that I, I covered around the same time, I believe, it was the mind drive. It was a thing to let you control DOS computer games with your mind, supposedly, by hooking a little electrode up to your finger or any other body part that you could fit inside there <laughs> and uh yeah uh, you know it doesn't it doesn't work at all it was complete junk because i ended up hooking a tomato to it and the tomato did better at the games than i did so i i just decided that was a total nonsense but it was considered the future the new york times said it was like the most promising piece of tech at the time but nope <laughs> it's always fun to cover so um talking of big piles of junk uh, are you excited about VR? You know, <laughs> I am. I will say that I am excited for the future of VR, and I don't think we're there yet. I think we're getting there. Um, I think that, you know, I have an HTC Vive and Oculus Rift and some weird Chinese ones. I got this some Chinese one the other day somebody sent me from, I guess, Hong Kong. It's hilarious. I got to cover that thing. But um, So there's some of these that are really, really well done. And then there's a lot of them that I think they're either going to be knockoffs or the software just is is total crap. And I think that's what's making people really turned off to the idea of VR right now. Um, there's a really bad VR. And that stuff is not going to convince anyone that this is the future. There's very few things about virtual reality that make any sense to me right now. Um, or that would make me say, oh, this is worth spending $1,000 on. There needs to be way more software and uh, implementation for this to make sense because too many people still getting sick and too many people getting bored of these little three-minute tech demos. So I, it's promising, but man, they got a ways to go. Well, we actually tried one of the, I think it was the first VR system, Virtuality it was called, yeah, um, yeah. at a trade show last year, and it was, um, it was based on an Amiga 3000. You essentially wore the Amiga on your back. It was so heavy. <laughs> and, like, it was about four frames per second. But, um, I mean, do you remember virtual reality first time around, like, back in the 90s? I do, actually. I remember trying some of them at arcades. Um, they had one there. It was basically the uh, the Forte VFX-1. And it was this, you know, it was a headset that you could play these sort of military, a couple military things in there. I, there was a version of Quake for it, made everyone sick. But um, yeah, I, I, strict, I do remember playing that one. You could shoot just tanks and whatnot. It was like Battlezone in VR. I thought it was the coolest thing ever, but I was eight years old, so of course I did. Yeah, we had that uh, one in the UK, and I remember feeling like Darth Vader, where it just kept, where you pulled it down over your head, just the whole head. Yeah, <laughs> just thinking this is amazing, and then five yeah. minutes later, wanting to throw up. <laughs> it was it was about a five minute experience. So I can at least I'm, I'm very happy with the current crop being uh, you know it doesn't make me motion sick for the most part. But yeah, I know I, I remember that, and I remember a friend of mine had a Virtual Boy, and well, that was just a mess. I mean. Uh, no, so I, I'm, I, I remember that, and I'm glad that it's gone. I really am. VR needed to die in the 90s. It needed to die so it could rise again. Uh, I don't know. It's quite a, It's not quite a phoenix yet. This is more like a, I don't know, a robin with an injured wing coming back <laughs> to life at the moment. But it's better than it was. I was about to say, do you think it's going to have 
at the same crash as it did in the mid '90s, and maybe crash mm. in a couple of years' time, and then maybe make a comeback in about 15 years, because that's how I feel it will go. It's pretty possible at this point. I'm I'm saying I'm thinking it is because you know unless the next generation of the Rift and the Vive and the other potential ones that I think NVIDIA or Razer is doing one and Magic Leap know, as well. They're doing uh, some yeah, lasers on great. retinas. Yeah, there's there's some promising tech, but I don't know if the public really cares enough. And we'll see maybe how the PlayStation VR was because a lot of people have PS4s and I don't know. I haven't tried that one yet. I, I don't have a whole lot of hope for console VR because I don't want to really sit down in front of a console to play it. I I think that standing up with the Vive and walking around and touching things with your hands makes more sense. Um, it, it really needs a good input solution. I think that's holding a lot of things back. Like, we need some proper VR gloves like we saw in every sci-fi movie in 1995. That's what we need. Uh, one thing I noticed as well, that you do loads of little series about DRM and kind of copy protection and stuff. Uh, I find that really interesting because... Stuff like Monkey Island with the key wheel. The code that. wheel, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the code wheel. Um, what are your views on piracy and DRM and such things? Well, I think that there's a place for it, especially in, well, in, in for piracy, not DRM. I don't think there's any place for DRM. I think there's a place for piracy, especially in terms of preserving old games, because nobody is doing it any other way. There's an awful lot of games that just they don't exist anymore unless you get a pirated version. I think that's pretty important. More than some people are even realizing until recently. Um, but yeah, DRM, I, I, anything that treats a customer like they're a criminal first and a customer later, I just don't agree with. I do find the older forms of copy protection pretty darn fascinating and kind of endearing nowadays. You know, Things like the lens lock and the code wheels and, and papers full of endless colors and pictures that you have to match up it's it was annoying back then but now it's like oh look how that was pretty cute they were trying to actually stop piracy <laughs> well i and remember i remember being a kid and like everyone at school had pirated copies of like monkey island and like the yeah, one they did the one kid at school that actually bought it was the one that had to sit there and do the code wheel photocopy we, we, like, we were five minutes into the game by then <laughs> yeah you would i would remember calling up friends they would give me the code uh, to out of this world and eventually we just i went over to my mom's workplace and we just copied the code wheel we took it apart copied all the pieces cut them out individually piece by piece and then just got you know some glue and stuck it all back together and uh, yeah no it didn't stop anyone it really didn't yeah it's just wasted a bunch of people's time and now it gives people like me a reason to make a video that's all that drm has done as far as i'm concerned well you made a really interesting point there about um you know it preserving games in the future i mean obviously a lot of people think we're kind of moving into an era now we already have in pc gaming where a lot of it is digital only um, yeah. Do you think that's going to damage like retro collecting in 10, 20 years? Will it even be around then? It's going to be dead in 20 years, as far as I know right now. Because unless something changes, and um, I mean, there is a DRM-free sort of movement going on at the moment. You know, certain companies are doing that. CD Projekt Red is a big one with the Witcher games. None of those have DRM at all. So that's great. I think that that needs to continue in the right direction. Um, but yeah, it, it's going to be a problem because I mean, th things like right now, it's like Denuvo was just cracked. I mean, we're talking about games that are some of them four years old at this point that are just now going to be playable, uh, offline <laughs> or without any other kind of checks and, and stuff going on in the background. And I mean, these are big games, rise of the tomb Raider and things like that, that are not going to be playable unless of course companies continue to put them out there. And I'm sure that for the bigger games, companies are always going to re-release them, right? We're seeing, a lot of that addressed with the remasters and remakes every two days it seems like there's a new one so that's a thing 
I mean, that, that's better than nothing, I guess. But as far as original games, now, I mean, ha- half the games I'll find from 2007, you just can't even play them. I'll go and I, the code is not there. Like finding a used copy, for instance. This is a legit copy of the game, but I still can't play it because the code has already been used. Like, that's just silly. Well, I know uh, on your channel you often find um, physical copies of games that a lot of people assume mm-hmm. are digital only. Are you an advocate of physical games then? Do you kind of go out your way to get them when you can? <laughs> I really do. Yeah, I, I import them all the time. They mostly seem to come from overseas. Uh, here in the U.S., the only thing you can get physically, you go to a store, you might find Warcraft, you might find The Sims, and maybe the latest... Um, I, I, I can't even think. What, what are those things? They're like point-and-click nancy drew things that's about it so yeah physical stuff is is really hard to find increasingly so over here especially for the pc i haven't other than a few companies that are doing them in very niche low production runs like there's a company called indie box that i'm a big supporter of and they make physical versions of all sorts of uh independent pc games so i mean they've they've done really cool stuff for that they'll give you extra things too but, you know, they'll give you games um, like Axiom Verge in a physical copy. Uh, that's just awesome. I, I wish more companies at least gave the option. Uh, they're digital-free copies, too, or DRM-free digital copies, too, so that it's not like you're going to be restricted. And you get a box. I just like boxes. I'm the same. I'm a complete sucker for packaging. Like, if it yes. looks nice, that's it. I'm going to buy it. <laughs> that, that, that's pretty much enough reason for me. But and if it's got a backup as well so I don't have to worry about downloading it again later, yeah. that's, that's pretty important. So, um, are you a fan of any other YouTubers, or do you have anybody you could recommend? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, somebody I've been watching a whole lot of recently. He's not necessarily uh, gaming-related, uh, but as Techmoan. I, I, every one of his videos are just golden, as far as I'm concerned. He puts out videos on old uh, hi-fi tech mm. and um, lots of different... 70s, 80s technology that I've never heard of. He did one on like a carousel cassette deck the other day, and that's like, what? You could put like 20 cassette tapes in this carousel, and it'll <laughs> spin them around, and it was like a giant iPod from the early 70s. So that one's really good. Uh, my friend Pushing Up Roses, she does a lot of similar stuff that I do. Oh, Hers yeah. is, just, yeah, she, a lot of DOS games, and she's just really good at what she does. Um, Metal Jesus Rocks, he's another guy that I know we've hung out before, he covers PC stuff on occasion, but he's, he's got a really good Hidden Gems series of finding older games that maybe you don't necessarily think of picking up because they look like crap, but they're actually pretty good, so uh, yeah those those are the few that I probably watch the most I, I find myself, I really enjoy Hidden Gems actually by uh, Metal Jesus Rocks and I find myself, uh, when I'm watching on my phone snapping the picture <laughs> to, oh, yeah. you know, to then look up on eBay and go, oh, I've never heard of that Mega Drive, well, that Genesis game, or I've never heard of that Nintendo game. And off, more often than not, they're super expensive, but no, I love that guy as well. <laughs> yeah, they're very fun. I, I wish he could do, uh, or I wish I could hook up with him to do some more PC stuff. We've talked about it, but he lives as far away as possible from me <laughs> on the other side of the country, so uh, maybe someday, but yeah, it's, it's really good stuff. I look at you and you get involved in the community as well and you comment on other people's videos and that kind of thing and a lot of YouTubers think these days YouTube is not as much of a community as it used to be but do you still think it's important to get involved? Yeah, it's, it's hugely important to me. I still respond to every email, every tweet that I possibly can. I, I will stick around for a couple of days on every video and you know respond to the, the questions and comments and yeah, I love, I still treat it like it's YouTube in 2007, really. I That's it, how it is to me in my mind. I don't even feel like a channel that's large. I mean, it. You know, I just passed 400,000 subscribers, and it feels like 
back then to me because I still talk to the same people and still communicate in the same way. It's getting harder because now there's more people vying for your attention every day. But um, no, I, I think that's pretty important and it makes people feel like – I don't know. I care. <laughs> Even if I, I maybe sometimes don't, <laughs> I want to make it look like I do. You know, I want to at least say, hey, you know, I, I do want to hear what you have to say, even if it's not necessarily going to sway my opinion, you know, uh, but I, I would love to just talk about certain things. And I, I like to put some videos forward like that that are sort of talking points. So even just some of them that I've put out, like I did a video on a Toys R Us catalog, I love hearing about people's random memories that to me they mean nothing, but to them they mean everything. I love hearing that kind of passion from people when they see a toy or a game or something they've forgotten. It's just great. I mean that, that's the kind of stuff that I feel like I live for almost, just like feeding off other people's energy for these old games. So it, it makes me want to do more videos. So I, I think ignoring your community is a kind of a bad idea. No, I definitely agree. I mean, did you uh, straight away you just struck a note with me when you mentioned the Toys R Us video? And uh, did you ever find yourself sitting in bed circling the things you want in it, hoping your parents yeah, every would time. see every time? Every time. <laughs> no, I would, I would take that and I would circle like every single thing in a magazine, even half the stuff in the girls section. I don't care. I just plot, you know, I'd pop it down like in front of where I knew my dad would be sitting to get breakfast in the morning. Like, you take the hint, please. And then you'd never see it. <laughs> never see it. <laughs> well, Clint, what are your future plans for your channel then? Where, where do you want to be in, like, say, five years from now? Hopefully still doing this. I hope YouTube sticks around because it's doing very well. I've, um, I've had the best year so far. In 2016, I've already had more views this year than I had for all of last year. So it's... It's awesome. I, I just hope to continue doing this and, um, you know, hopefully I don't start sucking or something. That would be awful. But I, I'd like to do more involved things of what I, I guess I'm already doing. Um, things like the tech tales, for instance. I, I love doing those. I, I kind of wish that maybe I could make that a full length thing at some point. So maybe uh, almost like a history of personal computers, you know, that goes for two hours. That, that would be super cool. Maybe interview people. I don't know. That would be a really cool thing to do. But um, yeah, otherwise, I guess I'm just going to keep looking at really awful hardware peripherals and, and like building computers and stuff and uh, see what people like to watch. Well, Clint, I'm sure everyone who listens to our podcast has seen your channel, but for the uh, the few that may have not checked you out online yet, where can people find you? Uh, it's youtube.com slash D. That's P-H-R-E-A-K-I-N-D-E-E. But, of course, nobody remembers that. So just type in LGR on YouTube and you will find it. Where did Freakin' D come from? <laughs> that That is... A really kind of embarrassing story. <laughs> I was like 13 years old or something, and I, I used to name my my in-game characters off of other in-game characters. So in the Need for Speed, the original one for like the 3DO and MS-DOS, there was a character named Freak with a PH. I thought that was super, super rad, so I left it, and I just nice. called myself Freak for the longest time. And it was sometime later that somebody had uh, had said something to me like you know don't don't be a dick but instead don't be a dick they said don't be a d they said don't be a freaking d i'm like freaking d that sounds pretty cool so i just kept i merged my old like uh, in-game name with that and kept it and it's stuck and now youtube doesn't let me change it so it's there forever i think it's got a ring to it I like it kind of does it, it at least is unique well, well, Clint, you know, it's a group of guys who love your channel. We, we hope you keep going for years as well, and we, uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show this week. Oh, yeah, thank you. It was awesome being here.